On January the 12th, 2010, I was serving as a missionary in Haiti when the earthquake struck there. More than 300,000 people were killed in 47 seconds and a whole nation was thrown into chaos. I spent most of that year working in Haiti. I saw faith in action, but I also saw despair and I saw hopelessness. Ruthie, my wife at the time, was a nurse and stayed home that year to take care of her father who was dying. In November of 2010, he passed away and I flew home from Haiti and conducted his funeral. And we were kind of looking forward to a bit of a break. But in early May of 2011, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And I went from being a missionary in Haiti to a primary caregiver for my wife. She had a right radical mastectomy and multiple infections and complications. Chemotherapy destroyed her health. And in October, she went into the intensive care unit. And on November 26 of 2011, she passed away. Two weeks later, my mother-in-law died. And a month after that, my father died. I did a lot of screaming in the shower. Grief is not easy work. And it tempts us to despair even when we know Jesus. 2012 was a year of grief for me. But then God brought a great blessing into my life. I met Michelle in 2013. And we were married in 2014. And God provided some tremendous opportunities of ministry together. I left the work in Haiti and became a hospice chaplain so that I could be at home more. We moved to Indianapolis and brought her oldest daughter and our son-in-law and grandson back from Hawaii and they lived with us for a year. Michelle began to notice some changes in my personality, but she never said anything. And we moved back to Fishers, Indiana the next summer. Then I began to notice some watering in my left eye and some swelling. The ophthalmologist kept saying it was minor, not to worry about it. But finally, Michelle put her foot down and said, we need a referral. And I went to an ocular surgeon on a Thursday afternoon. He sent me immediately to the hospital for an MRI. And the next morning, I get a phone call. You've got a large mass in your left frontal temporal lobe, a brain tumor report to the emergency room immediately. The neurosurgical team is standing by. On the 25th of February, 2021, I underwent a nine and a half hour surgery to remove that tumor. That tumor had brought pain and irritability over the last year. That is hard to describe. And I didn't even know sometimes that I was in pain because I had become used to it. Like all disease, it threatened my health but it did not threaten my life because I was crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago and I arose with him when I put my faith in him and was baptized into him. Through all these experiences, I've learned some things about hopelessness and despair. Number one, in life you will have trouble. Count on it. Jesus said, I have come that you might have peace. 
in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Second thing that God has taught me is this. Fear and faith can't coexist. Worry and worship can't coexist. Pick one. By the way, when I went to see my surgeons in post-op, they both said, we can't take credit for your eyesight. Something kept your tumor from destroying your optic nerve. And I simply said it wasn't something. It was someone. God is still sovereign. And in the deepest, darkest days of discouragement and despair, you can trust Him. Even when you don't know what tomorrow brings. So we appreciate Max sharing his testimony right there. And if you're new to us, we're in a sermon series entitled Arise. And each one of the five messages is going to focus on the resurrection of Christ. And last week we started off with Arise to Purpose. And in the next few Sundays we're going to be talking about Arise to Faith, Arise to Joy, and Arise to Hope. But today we're talking about the relevance of Jesus' death and resurrection to despair. Arise from despair. And Jesus was in the tomb. Well, he was crucified on Friday night, buried, spent all day Saturday in the tomb. He resurrected early on Sunday morning by the Jewish reckoning of time. That's three days in the tomb. Now, let me tell you about a man who's looking for a job, and he was pretty desperate, and he saw a help wanted ad in the paper for the zoo. He went to the zoo, and they explained to him, you know, what's happened here is our gorilla has died. And our gorilla is the main attraction at the zoo, and so we're just looking for someone to wear a monkey suit, pretend to be a gorilla until we can get a new one. He said, well, you know, I'm really desperate, so I'll take that job. Well, it was a great suit. He put it on, looked just like a gorilla. He went and he laid in the enclosure, and everybody was convinced. But he got tired of laying around, so he got up and began to walk back and forth. Well, the crowds really loved that, and they started throwing him peanuts, and he liked peanuts. So... He became even more animated, and he climbed up on a vine. He starts swinging back and forth. Boy, they're throwing handfuls of peanuts. He kind of got carried away, and on one swing, the vine broke, and he wound up landing over in the lion enclosure. And there was a huge lion coming towards him, and so he begins to scream, Help! Help! I'm not a gorilla. I'm just a man in a monkey suit. And the lion pounced on him and held him down, and then the lion said, If you don't be quiet, we're both going to lose our jobs. Now, it's possible that someone came here this morning with a monkey on their back, and that monkey is despair. That monkey may be some great wound or suffering trial in their life. If we are to look around and think about it, there's a lot of people who have that same issue and that same problem. And what we want to do this morning is just address that Saturday when Jesus was in the tomb, in between the Friday, in between the resurrection on Sunday, and how it speaks to us about how to engage God during times of despair. Max Lucado has an article about what's called Silent Saturday. He writes, Jesus is silent on Saturday. The women have anointed his body and placed it in Joseph's tomb. The cadaver of Christ is as mute as the stone which guards it. He spoke on Friday. He will liberate the slaves from death on Sunday. But on Saturday, Jesus is silent. So is God. God made himself heard on Friday. He tore the curtains of the temple, opened the graves of the dead, rocked the earth, and blocked the sun of the sky, and sacrificed the Son of Heaven. Earth heard much of God on Friday, nothing on Saturday. 
Jesus is silent. God is silent. Saturday is silent. Easter weekend discussions tend to skip Saturday. Friday and Sunday, get the press. The crucifixion and resurrection command our thoughts. But don't ignore Saturday. You have them too. Silent Saturdays. The day between the struggle and the solution, the question and the answer, the offered prayer and the answer thereof. Saturday's silence torments us. Is God angry? Did I disappoint him? God knows Jesus is in the tomb. Why doesn't he do something? Or in your case, God knows your career is in the tank, your finances are in the pit, your marriage is in a mess, your addiction is in control. Why doesn't he act? What are you supposed to do until he does? So just to be clear, we're using this term Silent Saturday, the Saturday in between the crucifixion and the resurrection to represent those times when we're crying out to God in prayer and we're not hearing the answer and God seems to be silent. Nothing seems to be happening. Might last for a day. Might be three days, three months, three years, or 30 years. How do we engage God in the silence? I'm going to say three things this morning. First of all, look out. Look out. Matthew 27, 50 and 55. Jesus shouted again and he released his spirit. And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching. There were many who were experiencing the silent Saturday. There were the many women. There were the 11 remaining disciples. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus said that everybody in Jerusalem knew what had happened to Jesus. Paul says there were 500 disciples of Jesus who were witnesses of these events. We are not alone when we experience the silence of God during times of trial and challenge and suffering. That's the point right here. We're not alone. Pete Gregg in his book, God on Mute, this is a book on prayer, God on Mute, great book, writes, the Bible is a book about a God who speaks, but it does not portray him as one who speaks incessantly to his people or to anyone. Instead, we often endure silent Saturdays in which God's word is muted and his presence is veiled. You might recognize the name C.S. Lewis, well-known author of a past generation, Christian author. Wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, many books on theology. He also wrote a book about the time when his wife died of cancer, and that book is called A Grief Observed. And here's what he writes, what he went through. I went to him when my need was desperate to God, when all other help was in vain. What did I find? A door slammed in my face, a sound of bolting and double bolting inside, and after that, silence. In the Old Testament, you have the Israelites who were liberated from Egyptian slavery, the the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, and it's a great example of what God can do and will do for his people. But we remember that that came after a period of 430 years where the people were crying out to God, and they heard silence. Eugene Peterson has written a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. He worked on that for nine years, studying, translating every word, Old Testament, New Testament, and coming up with this paraphrase. Eugene Peterson writes that that 430-year period of silence He writes, this seemingly unending stretch of the experience of the silence of God is reproduced in most of our lives to one extent or another, and most of us don't know what to make of it. Mother Teresa died at the age of 87, after which her diaries came to light. People began to read and to study her diaries and were shocked 
at how she struggled in her relationship with God. Mother Teresa wrote in her diary, My smile is a great cloak that hides a multitude of pains. People think that my faith and hope and my love are overflowing and that my intimacy with God and union with His will fills my heart. If only they knew the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, I listen and do not hear which caused one local paper in Rome to write of Mother Teresa. The real Mother Teresa was one who for one year had visions and for the next 50 years had doubts. Now, I don't share these excerpts and testimonies to undermine the faith of anyone. These people all had faith. But just to realize when we look out, this is not atypical, it's typical, it is part of the human experience We struggle, we wrestle, we're confused, and we deal with silence. So we look out. Number two, it's talking about how to engage God during the silence. Number two, look back. Look back. Matthew 27, 46. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, this is Jesus on the cross, and even as he is pinned to the beams of the cross, he finds the vocabulary to articulate his emotions, his feelings, his feelings of loneliness, confusion, and abandonment in the words of Scripture. He's looking back to an ancient psalm written 1,000 years before he was born by David. This is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now when I say look back, Jesus was looking back at his scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, finding the vocabulary to process what he was going through, incorporating these ancient prayers into his life and his word, personalizing them. We look back to the scripture, the ancient scriptures. Even if they seem maybe to have lost their flavor and taste to us in certain stretches of of our journey. I was reading about this fellow, Russell Donnelly. Back during the pandemic in 2020, he lost his sense of smell and his sense of taste. And he began making YouTube videos of him eating different combinations of foods that you normally would not put together just to demonstrate that he could do it because he couldn't taste anything. He garnered nearly a million followers with these videos. Let me show you one of these just for fun. All right. COVID taste test part two. TikTok doesn't like it when you swallow toothpaste, so I'm just going to brush and do it that way. Oh, yeah, I'm delicious. I violated a community guideline in the last one. So, Tropicana with my toothpaste. The onion from two days ago. No, balsamic vinegar. No, apple cider vinegar. For real, nothing. 
nice lemon. I think later for dessert, I'll have a wasabi Oreo. Okay. Steve, why in the world did you show that? Well, my point here, he, he could eat that food. He didn't taste a thing. But the food was still just as nourishing to his body. It provided the nutrients that he needed. There may come times in our lives where we read the Scripture and it seems tasteless to us. Other people, they seem to be feasting on a banquet. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. But to us, we're just not feeling it. But we continue to read even during those times. We continue to listen to the words of God, read the words of God, because the word of God, that's our bread of life, and it is still just as nourishing to us. Now, in the, in the Psalms, there are 150 Psalms in the Old Testament. Forty of those are called Psalms of Lament, Lament. These are psalms where the author is crying out to God about their pain, their confusion, their suffering, their loneliness, crying out in a lament. We have lament in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. We have lament in Job. We have lament in the book of Lamentations, which was authored by Jeremiah also. The root of the word lamentation is lament. That's a time when the Israelites are in Babylon. They're separated from their homeland from God's land, from God's temple. They feel like they're separated from God's presence, and God is silent, and they're crying out in lament. These scriptures are the vocabulary where we can articulate a prayer to God when we're not feeling it. The Bible says in Romans that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's generally true, but specifically, He helps us to pray when we don't know how to articulate our prayers. Well, these are prayers, these laments, that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there is an ancient practice of putting these prayers into the first person and making them our own. We can pray the Psalms of Lament. We can pray the Lamentations. We can pray the laments that we read in Job. The Holy Spirit is giving us a language to cry out to God in that process. I think if we have a systematic way of reading through the Bible, this will really help us. This is just a little bit of equipping. You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the one-year Bible. And I'm just going to plug it again this morning. This is a brand new one. I'm going to give it away in the 11 o'clock service to someone who was baptized last week. But this is a one-year Bible, and there's an online version. You can read it for free online. There's a an app you can get on your phone, and we can listen to the one-year Bible every day. In this particular version, this is New Living Translation, but in this particular version, you'll read a psalm every day. In every day's reading, there's Old Testament, New Testament, and a psalm. We'll read through 150 psalms twice a year. That means at least probably once a week we're going to read a psalm of lament. We're going to learn this practice of praying these laments back to God. And I'm a big fan of journaling as well. And getting out that yellow legal pad, getting out that notebook, getting out that laptop, writing these prayers out and praying them back to God. We can pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look back to the ancient scriptures. And finally, one more thing. 
and that is to look around. Look around. Matthew 27, 57 through 28, 1. And as evening approached, Joseph took the body and placed it in his new tomb. And the next day on the Sabbath, they sealed the tomb. And early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. So Jesus is in the tomb, as we said, on Saturday. And as this says, that Saturday was a Sabbath. So Sabbath was the day when the faithful Jews would gather together in synagogue for a corporate worship service. Very much analogous to what we do in church on Sunday. Weekly, corporate. I wonder if the disciples on that Sabbath went to synagogue. If they went to synagogue that day. That was their habit. The Bible says this was Jesus' routine, and this was the routine of the disciples. They had probably never missed a synagogue service in their lives. Now, maybe they were too afraid to go. We don't know. But if they went to Sabbath, I wonder what they would have heard preached that Saturday. Well, since it was during the Passover, the high week of Passover, it's very likely the synagogue preachers were using as their text the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, how they slaughtered that Passover lamb and put the blood on the houses. That was their deliverance from the judgment of God. I wonder if any of those synagogue preachers connected the dots to Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, who had been sacrificed just a day before. It's possible. The thief on the cross did it. Even before Jesus' resurrection, he came to faith in Jesus on the basis of his death. But regardless, the disciples went to synagogue. They're looking around and gathering together with other faithful believers. And that's one of the ways that we engage God during the silence. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. One rabbi said, human beings are God's language. Doctors and nurses who help us during times of sickness and disease are the language of God. Little children who come to us and ask for a bedtime story are the language of God. Our friends and our family and our loved ones, God is speaking to us. Louis Armstrong wrote a song, It's a Wonderful World. And he said, I see friends shaking hands and saying, how do you do? But what they're really saying is what? I love you. I love you. When you come to church this morning, somebody greets you at the door. Hey, how do you do? How you doing? Glad to have you this morning. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Every one of those is just another way of saying, I love you. Every handshake, every hug, I love you. We are the voice and the presence of God. Uh, University of Wisconsin did a pain study. They paid these students to come in and stick their feet in buckets of ice water, see how long they could keep them there before they had to pull them out. And what they discovered was if there was a companion sitting with the student in the room, he was able to keep his feet in the bucket of water in general twice as long as if he were alone. Just the companionship helped them to bear the physical pain. Same is true of emotional pain. Same is true of spiritual pain. I want to read you an article here by Ben Irwin entitled Five Minutes with Rob. Now, the Rob in this article is Rob Lacey. He's probably not well known to us, but he was an actor uh, and uh, an author in Great Britain, and he died of cancer, and Ben Irwin was his friend, and he wrote this article. He said, I traveled to Wales to visit a friend who was dying of cancer. It was the third time in 10 years Rob had battled cancer. The first diagnosis came six months after he was married. 
The second recurrence came from about the time that Rob and his wife were expecting their first child. That cancer gradually disappeared with no medical explanation. So Rob and his family attributed it to answered prayer and basked in God's favor. Fast forward four years and the cancer came back. And when I went to see Rob one last time, he was asleep. As I sat at the nurse's station writing my goodbye on a scrap of paper, I sensed God's presence. I didn't leave the hospital with answers to the many questions that plagued my mind the day before, but in their place emerged a new idea. Whatever else God may or may not be, He is present in our pain. He suffers with us, as if on some level God had cancer too. After all, Matthew 8, 17 says, Jesus took our illnesses and bore our diseases. In the end, I traveled 4,000 miles to spend five minutes with Rob, but I would not trade those five minutes for anything in the world. Sometimes it's not enough to tell a suffering friend you're praying for them. Sometimes you must become the answer to your own prayer. My last night in Wales, as I gathered with mutual friends to pray for Rob, I realized that God is present amid suffering because we are present in it. We are God's presence. We are God's presence. When we're going through these times, when we're suffering, when we're confused, when we're lonely, when we're plagued by the silence, we often want to be airlifted out of the field of battle. Just take me out, airlift me out. But what happens is that God parachutes in. And God comes to be present with us. And he's present with us in his people. So they could look back at Scripture, and they could look around at other people who are experiencing the same things. One thing that we can do that they couldn't do like us is we can look to the resurrection. That had not happened for them yet on Saturday. But we know about the resurrection. Sunday's coming, and the best is yet to come. I started with an article by Max Lucado. I want to finish with the rest of his article on Silent Saturday. He writes, as we walk around from day to day, waiting for a breakthrough in our career, our family, our health, our bank balance, our sexuality, our ministry, our best friend's illness, our marriage, our daughter who's turned her back on Jesus, or our recovery from addiction, we do so with our hope in Jesus risen from the dead, and hope does not disappoint. Saturdays have their purpose. They let us feel the full force of God's strength. Had God raised Jesus 15 minutes after the death of his son, would we have appreciated the act? Were he to solve your problems the second they appear, would you appreciate his strength? For his reasons, God inserts a Saturday between our Fridays and Sundays. If today is one for you, be patient. As one who endured the silent Saturday wrote, Be patient, brothers and sisters, as you wait for the Lord's return. Speaking of resurrection, I want to show you one more video. This past Thursday, uh, Becky Sklaris was baptized into Christ out at J.C. Beach. She was buried with Jesus in baptism and resurrected, the Bible says it's the language of Romans 6, and she was raised to walk in a newness of life. Let's watch that together. That was rough. And I lost my favorite hat, my favorite hat. But yeah, we welcome her. 
Becky had actually been sprinkled as an infant, and uh, so she, her parents, in, in doing that, christening her, expressed their desire that she would grow up to be a Christian. She fulfilled that desire right there. She demonstrated her own faith, made her own confession of faith, repented of sin, and as, a, as an adult, she was buried in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Thank you. She's an 11 o'clock service, but we're so glad to rejoice with her. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, there, there are many of us. Everybody in here has either been through a silent Saturday or is in the midst of one right now. We pray that you would remind us through these testimonies and through these scriptures that we are not alone. Your silence is not your absence. You are still present with us, that you are on the cross taking upon yourself all of that pain, all of that suffering. And that in your people, even in your people here, you are incarnated in the church in a very special way. And you are with us here today. Comfort, Lord, comfort. May we hear your voice in Jesus' name.